Hello and welcome to Milk and Meats here Friday nights. Uh, this is you're watching this on Kingdom in Context. I'm Sean. I appreciate everyone joining us tonight, and uh, I just want to thank you everyone for um, being with us tonight. It's been a been a little bit since we've been live and since we've been able to answer questions live. So I'm happy to get to do this again, and I get a lot of uh, encouragement out of this. I get uh, people usually ask really good questions. People that have been following our channel for the last three years are starting to ask really tough questions, and that's great. We love it. Bring it. And so I just want to thank you for being here. Also, a lot of us, a lot of you have reached out to us in the past week and offered your prayers. I want to thank you for that as well. Uh, we, I lost my brother-in-law um, several days ago, about um, seven days ago now. And so six days ago, excuse me. And so um, <clears throat> it's been really tough for my wife and myself and our family. So I just want to thank you that have reached out and extended your prayers to us and, and your uh, warm, kind words of encouragement. And so thank you. Um, as you saw the intro there, study guide still on. Uh, we're not on track, obviously. I've this past week, I've I've had a lot of other things going on, um, so I'm not on track with the study guide. I was hoping to have everything, or at least the first release of uh, of these several books that I had completed by tomorrow. But two things have happened. One, um, the tragedy in our family this past week has delayed me from being able to finish up what I wanted to with that. So it's probably going to be another week, maybe a week and a half before I have that ready to release uh, for all of our, for all of the patrons. So I want to apologize on one hand for that and also let you know what's going on on the other hand. And then two, I had some sort of update on my uh, my software and uh, this happened like two, three nights ago and it actually like misaligned a lot of my study guide. So I'm not happy about that. I'm going to have to go back in and reline all the little things up, all the, the color coded areas and the bullet points and everything. So there's some sort of uh, PDF slash PowerPoint update that happened with my Microsoft Office and it kind of it just messed things up. So I got to go in and fix that. That's going to take some extra time as well. So either way, it's still, it's still happening. Um, and, uh, if you do, if you are on Patreon, you're going to get early access to that. That's what the little commercial advert tries to share with you also in the, in the link below. And so we just want to let everyone know, we thank you. It's at the $20 tier level. So everyone that has joined up anticipating that we really thank you. That's coming soon. And, um, anyone that has, has been doing the $20 tier month for 12 months, that will basically equal the price of, pre-ordering a copy once we get the full uh, the full collection of scriptures in the color-coded context and then I submit it to the publisher and get it actual published as a book and get a whole bunch printed off for people basically if you've already done $20 tier for 12 total months then I'm, I'll get you it's, you're basically pre-buying a copy basically it's like uh, you'll get a free copy so just want to a big shout out and thank you to everyone that is doing that with us um, that is excited for that and encouraging us in that so I really appreciate it um, what else? What else? Uh, just um, Torah portions tomorrow. So if you're going to join us tomorrow, uh, tomorrow morning at uh, 12 Central Standard Time, 12, uh, 12 p.m. Central Standard Time, we're doing Torah portions. So if you want to join us for that, please do. We'll be in Leviticus 25. And then um, also don't don't miss our uh, the show that I've been doing with uh, West Blaze Jones on his channel, West Blaze Music. And that is going to be Wednesday nights. And it's called... Um, the show that we're doing is called Uncommon Ground, but it's a biblical cosmology show. So don't miss that. Go over there and subscribe to West Blaze and check that out. But I do want to thank everyone for being here. We got uh, quite a few people in the chat already. Gavin Miller's back. Miss Marsha's back. Welcome, everyone. Alyssa, West Blaze Music is here. Welcome, brother. Carla Malberg is back. Welcome. Anthony Dickinson, Jimmy Eagles Bear. Wits it gets it. Hey, I think that's awesome. Yeah. Hey, what's up, brother? And then Ann McKenzie, um, Arc Builder CCMC. Uh, my wife is here. Welcome, sweetie. 
you're, you know, you're just in the other room. You could join me if you'd like, um, if you feel up to it. The Clean Bee is here. Uh, Wildly Unpopular is here. The Brand Dialogues. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. So, guys, tonight, uh, we tried, I try to do these like at least once a month, sometimes twice a month. We just want to do a Q&A. Just it's wide open. Whatever you want to ask questions about scriptures, hopefully, guys. Uh, let's keep it to the Bible. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, we'll see if we don't get the stream shut down. So just go ahead and ask whatever you want. Um, I think, Anthony, I think you're talking about Uncommon Ground. So, yeah, we did uh, Where's the Curve last last week, episode five. And so hopefully that's what I think that's what you're talking about. <laughs> so appreciate it, brother. Yeah, me too, Westplays. I've been out the last couple of weeks, so I'm excited to get back to the tour portions tomorrow. It'll be exciting. And Chase is here. Welcome, Chase. Welcome back, brother. <clears throat> and Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Welcome back, sister. Good to see you. Brad Moody's here. Welcome. All right. So as always, I just try to tell you, uh, tell everybody watching, if you do have a question that you want me to ask, um, be sure to put an all capitalization. And in fact, I'm also going to drop the uh, studio link in the chat. So if you actually want to call in live, you can do that. Okay. I dropped it in the chat just now. I'm also going to make a banner out of it. So if anybody comes in a little late, so there's the call in link. If you guys want to want to jump in and you want to call in live, just make sure you got your shirt on, make sure you understand that you're going to be on camera and there's no take backs. There's no do overs. So, yeah. Uh, looks like. Okay. looks like we got our. Looks like my wife has got all caps, but it's not. I don't. Okay. So my mother-in-law wants me to talk about Sheol. Um, sweetie, if you could gather a specific question, perhaps, otherwise I could go on for an hour. Um, I don't know exactly what vein, what, what perspective, uh, you want me to talk about, but if you could gather a specific question, I'll be glad to talk about Sheol. Uh, Bobcat's droid is asking, how long was the Messiah's ministry? That's, that is up for debate. I personally don't know. Some people say it was a year. Some people say it was more like 17 months. Other people say it was three years. I think traditionally they hear like the church thought is like it was three years, but I don't know. Uh, because if you try to line up like how many feasts he went to, sometimes people just solely rely on the book of John to go for that information. But I'll be honest, I honestly don't know. Um, I've never been able to figure it out. Okay. Uh, West Blaze, I see you got all caps here. I don't see a question, brother. Um, if you have a specific question about this, please go ahead and, and shoot me shoot me that. Try to type that out again. Uh, the Brian Dialogues is asking, since the law was from the beginning, was it wrong for Adam and Eve's children to marry each other? Well, that's actually why I love the book of Jubilees. Uh, chapter 33, and actually the angel that's talking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he goes into depth about Reuben's sin, because Reuben had the sin of... Uh, sleeping with, I think it was Bilha, uh, that was his father Jacob's, um, one of his father's wives. So that was a huge no-no, and it was a sin that, according to the Torah, deserves death the day of. According to Jubilees thirty-three, they were supposed to um, basically, you know, you were not supposed to live beyond that day if you committed that specific sin. You're supposed to be brought before the elders and judged immediately. 
But Reuben was not treated like that. And the angel is explaining to Moses why Reuben was not treated like that. And it was specifically because the law for that actually had not been revealed yet as it was being revealed in this moment on Mount Sinai to Moses, which is the context of the Book of Jubilees. So this is what we've talked about this in previous episodes that there's and I am, I am addressing what you're talking about here with Adam and Eve. And this is, um, quote unquote, the best I got, if you will, as far as understanding that the, the God's ways that the creator, they are eternal. But he did not give them all to mankind at the same time, just like we know in the Garden of Eden, he gave them laws that pertain to the Garden of Eden. Jubilee says they were in the Garden of Eden for seven years and the angels were teaching them how to how to do what they were supposed to be doing in the Garden of Eden. Once they got outside the Garden of Eden and started multiplying and interacting with a whole bunch of other people of mankind um, through the offspring of Adam and Eve, you start running into all these other scenarios that start popping up, like Jubilee 33's explanation of Reuben's behavior with Bilhah. So the angel's trying to express to Moses that the, this law was not yet given to mankind, therefore Reuben is not held responsible because of that. So the, a lot of people would, sit, would apply that same logic to Adam and Eve's children, how they married, uh, according to the Book of Jubilees, they married Adam, Abel and Cain married their sisters in order to start procreation. This is why uh, Cain would have a wife to go off into the land of Nod and to the east and and start flourishing on his own in his own behalf, away from Adam and Eve and Abel, or excuse me, away from Adam and Eve. So, <clears throat> same concept. They're not given all the laws there. This is why the Mount Sinai moment was such a big deal. All these angels show up. Um, they're talking with Moses on the mountain. They're explaining the fullness of the Torah. In fact, that is what the book of Jubilees tries to expound upon in a variety of topics that we find in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers is he is the angel is, is explaining to Moses, look, here's how all of your patriarchs, all your predecessors before you, all the, your believe the, your forefathers in the faith before you, how they applied the Torah in their lives as far as what they knew about the Torah. So, it's a very unique book. It's uh, Jubilees is such a huge deal. It's a, it's no wonder first century rabbis of the Pharisaical party wanted believers and Jewish uh, people that did not believe in Jesus. Just anyone that was reading Jewish literature, they did not want them to read Jubilees, Enoch, and the Testament of Twelve Patriarchs, because it um, it it interrupts and it and it uh, contradicts a lot of Pharisaical. Uh, man-made traditions and teachings. So they've tried to they've tried to hide jubilees. They call it the lesser Genesis, but um, it's actually a great explanation of stuff we see in Genesis, and also all the way through Numbers. So, all right, we actually have got uh, hopefully um, hopefully brother, that's a decent answer for you. Wes Blaze is calling in. I think he's probably calling in with this question. Hey, what's up, Wes Blaze? Oh, brother, I can't hear you. Let me see if can you turn your mic on. Yeah, my bad. Can you hear me now? Oh, there you are. We got to echo anything? Look good? Sound good? I hear you. Yeah, it looks good. Sounds good. Right on. So Lindsay had said that, you know, mom wanted to talk about Sheol. I was mm -hmm. responding to her when I said, me too, second Ezra 7. I had, you know, I had on my mind for a, while, a long time that I wanted to ask you about some things in here. And uh, I noticed a couple other people saying in the chat that they wanted to kind of hear about Sheol too. So I figured I'd try to provide a specific vein. Whereas I've, I've seen or I've heard that there may be a little bit of controversy that I don't know the details about whether these passages, uh, basically they've, they've been excluded from certain versions of these scriptures. Is that the case? Um, there, yeah, there's apparently two different manuscripts of Second Ezra. One of them in chapter, I believe it's chapter 7, has additional verses at the end of that chapter. Okay. 
Yeah. Because if we look at Second Ezra 7, starting at verse, I had it and then I forgot it. Concerning death, the teaching 78 in the version I'm looking at at least. Okay. It says, when the determinate sentence on my version has gone out from the most high that a man should die as the spirit leaves the body to return again to him who gave it. It adores the glory of the, of the most high first of all. So when I read in, I want to say Ecclesiastes, the spirit returns to God who gave it. The mm -hmm. dust returns to the, the ground basically. Right. Yeah. Ecclesiastes nine six. Thank you. So I've never pictured that to mean that the disembodied spirit that ends up in Sheol literally goes to appear before the presence of God. Is that the case? Is that what this is saying? So, okay, let's read it again. When the decisive decree has gone forth from the Most High, then man shall die, as the spirit leaves the body to return again to him who gave it. First of all, it adores the glory of the Most High. And so you're you're thinking that the person or just the life force that he because this is what we've always tried to explain is that Genesis two seven, you got dirt, you got the breath of the Almighty come together that creates the living soul. That's that's what Sheol is for. It's a it's a container to receive the soul after the body dies, but the animating life force goes back to God who gave it to the Almighty. Sure. So that so that's they, where, they, yeah. If the, I I see uh, at least. Correct me if I'm wrong. I got on screen here for both of us to look at. But from my understanding, I see that the spirit lives, leaves the body to return again to him who gave it. That's going to be your Ecclesiastes 9, 6 moment, that breath of life that, that from the Almighty returns to him who gave it. Um, and so that would be what is being referenced as something that adores the glory of the Most High, not the soul that goes down to Sheol. Although, no. although my father or my grandfather's testimony of him being... Uh, in a coma for three days and, and dying and being brought back by the nurses um, is basically he claims that when he got down to a, a pleasant place with the river and a bright place with angels and he saw his family members like his mother and his best friend that had already passed on before him yeah they were they were down there praising god right so so are you are you saying the end of this specific verse you think that it's the soul goes to heaven first and then to Sheol. Is that what you're, you're, thinking? that's, that's what the way this was worded. That's what it made me wonder at the very I least wouldn't, it, from all the other contexts we got about Sheol. I wouldn't come to that conclusion. No. Cause and otherwise why would you, so basically you're basically would be taking a tour of all the layers well, of heaven before you go down to Sheol. Right. It's tough because, but why else would it say we have the mention later on of for seven days, they wander. Yeah. And then, and it's, it, I get the picture that each of these seven things, like it lists seven things for each, the righteous and then the unrighteous, like seven ways they'll be glad seven ways they'll be upset. Right. So yeah. the way it kind of reads to me is, is it's as if for each of those seven days, they're shown each of those seven things, maybe. And this is, I, you know, we haven't covered this on Honor of Kings yet, right? This is a part right. that is, is, I try to look into this as far as the manuscript history and it's tough, yeah. man. It's tough because it, it makes, it makes some big claims in here in these, in these remaining verses that okay. is not, is not in the other manuscripts. And you're like, well, what happened? Where, why are these left out? Why were these, 
what's going on there, trying to find a textual history or a chain of custody or any type of understanding of, you know, comment, even commentary from older translators. I couldn't find that as to far as far as what's up with all this additional info with this particular, because right now I've got pseudopigrapher.com. Um, if you go to sacredtext.com, you know, which is a, another translation of it, it doesn't have all this extra stuff in there. It just stops at 70. I believe it's 70. Right. Yes. Verse 70. So you've got an extra like 30 something verses here, 30 or 40, 50. You, you get a ton more verses here, right? Extra 70 verses. And there's just not any other passages from any other prophet that really goes into detail about this, you know, these experiences right? immediately after death. So it is tough. I see what you mean. It I is just tough heard because we, we did review. I heard you the, mention that they, they were guarded by angels in silence. Sure. And the only note, the only place that I know of that being referenced is in those passages. Is there anything wait, else? Wait a minute. You heard me say what? I've heard you say that, you know, it's said that, in Sheol were guarded by angels. Well, just angels first, first Enoch uh, tells you that there is um, arch, one of the one of the archangels is in charge over Sheol, and then he has yeah. people under him. So this, oh, I lost you, brother. We lost him. I think his uh, his thing cut out. Call back him, um, West Blaze, if you can still hear this. And we'll we'll pick it back up uh, when you call back in. Uh, Tom F. is asking, which translation of the Book of Enoch and the other powerful books would you recommend? As many as you can get your hands on, <laughs> because they are translations, right? So as many as you can get your hands on. You want to cross-reference, compare, and check. I mean, that's what we we try to do. Um, I, I've i leaned toward the R.H. Charles translation with the Book of First Enoch, um, even though the Lawrence, I, I cross-reference often with the Lawrence um, when, in my personal studies. And I've even cross-referenced from a modern version that was put out in 2019 from a guy who translated the Giaz directly from the Giaz, from the Ethiopian Giaz, uh, into English, into modern English. That was very interesting uh, idea, um, but that was something I'm, I'm signed up to this like academic website where people publish academic papers. And that was one that, that came up um, through my notifications just last year or maybe two years ago, actually. So. That, that's not really available for a lot of people, but um, uh, the two most prevalent are R.H. Charles and the, the Richard Lawrence translations. I, I would just get them both and cross-reference them if you can. They're, I think they're $7 in paperback uh, per book, and that way you can try to check them out. The other ones, you just have to find which ones are available and, you know, um, and how many different translations are available because there's a lot of other quote-unquote apocryphal and pseudepigraphal and deuterocanonical books out there. They're just not all available in multiple translations. It's just the, what I've said, what we've said in honor of Kings um, and that show a lot with Ken Heidebrecht uh, from hanging on his words. We, we try to remind people that these other books that were considered deuterocanonical by the Catholic church, um, they, and then of course the Protestant church tries to act like they don't exist. There isn't the same depth of scholarship that we have on the, the American canon of 66. So there's not a whole bunch of commentary on it. There's not a whole bunch of language um, uh, uh, breakdowns and concordances that have been created from them. So it's just um, just doing the best. Do we do the best we can to find the translations that are available? Uh, West Blaze, if you're still here, brother, go ahead and try to call back in. I'm not sure if your internet went out or what. What's up? But uh, Be Good is asking, any thoughts on what we may be doing far into the resurrection, say 5,000 years in? It's a great question, Be Good. Well, 
we'll be doing the Torah for one. So this is why Yeshua in John chapter 15, verses 8 through 11, he references that his joy was complete because he was doing his father's commandments. Now, a lot of people, because they don't have any familiarity with um, the concepts expounded in the father's instructions in Exodus through, through Deuteronomy, they, they don't understand how joyful it can actually be, especially when other people are doing it around you. Uh, you've got the multiple feasts throughout the year. You've got the Sabbath every week, which is literally like an appointment with the Father. Uh, by the way, for those of you celebrating the Sabbath, Shabbat Shalom to you. It's already it's just now going, getting to be sundown here where I am. So, you know, hopefully you guys have a good day of rest. And all the Sabbaths are feast days. This is what people seem to glaze over because they don't study the Old Testament very well or just very often, um, all the Sabbaths are feast days, guys. That means it's a day of relaxing, joy, fellowship, food. It's a wonderful time. So we've got lots of those. Literally an entire month. If you add up all the feast days plus all the Sabbaths, it's equal to an entire month out of the year that you get to have a feast day and relax, not have to work or do anything like that. So as far as, you know, you're asking your question 5,000 years after the resurrection. Well, according to the, to the scriptures, after their first resurrection event, when Yeshua returns through the firmament, takes out the wicked, brings New Jerusalem down to the earth, starts the millennial reign, and all the survivors of the nations come and learn the behavior of the Creator, which is the Torah, and, and interact with the New Jerusalem and the resurrected saints that are inside of it, will be a priesthood that ministers to those survivors of mortal mankind, to which we will then be teaching them Torah, right? And we'll be doing that in the as a part of the Melchizedek priesthood under the authority of Yeshua. Right, Shu of Nazareth, who is our high priest in that priesthood. Um, so this is where we'll be doing that for a long time. Then at the end of the millennial reign, they have the second resurrection. So everyone that lived and died throughout the millennial reign now will face judgment for a second resurrection. And some will be raised to eternal life and some will be raised to face punishment in the lake of fire. So then after that, the whole earth, according to Jubilees, I think it's verse chapter 19, the whole earth is then inherited by Israel, which is everyone in covenant and faith and belief with the creator. So it, it starts with the first resurrection. It starts with the saints. This is why Revelation 20, verse 4 through 6 says, blessed is he who takes part in the first resurrection because he'll rule and reign for a thousand years with Christ. Then everyone will be resurrected, given this new heart, new body that's incorruptible with, with the father's instructions permanently written on his heart. So he'll never sin again, according to 1 Timothy 5, 6 through 9. Therefore, then you will live in peace forever in a covenant of peace with the Most High. Um, the New Jerusalem is already on the earth. It's connecting heaven and the earth below. The entire uh, creation model is connected at that point, And you're all together living in peace, enjoying the feast days, having a good time, uh, walking in, in fellowship with one another. So it, unfortunately, the story that we have in the scriptures doesn't say what happens beyond that. But after the, um, it, it just says that, the earth will endure forever. The sun and moon will endure forever. That um, and the, even the luminaries and and, Revel and Julius twenty two they get renewed. Um, so you're going to have uh, a wonderful, beautiful creation model filled with people that are doing what's right, doing the behavior of the Creator. And uh, yeah, you get to fellowship. It's a big place. It's a big place, guys. So what are you doing? Maybe you're exploring the upper layers where the angels have lived all this time. So it's a big place. That's all I know. And um, I don't know. I'm sure if the, if he decides to do anything after that, I'm sure we'll enjoy it because he seems to have really good things in mind for us. Um, Rick Billington is asking, does Zechariah 14, 12 through 14 take place in the millennial kingdom? All right, let's look it up real quick so everyone can read along. 
Zechariah 14, 12 through 14. Put it on screen. Okay, guys, this is passages in question. It says, and this will be the plague which was the Lord strikes all the peoples who have warred against Jerusalem. Their flesh will, will rot while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot on their mouth. On that day, a great panic from the Lord will come upon them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of one will rise against the other. Judah will also fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. And a similar plague will strike the horses and the mules, camels and donkeys, and all the animals in those camps. So first quick answer to your question, it takes place, no, not during the millennial reign. It takes place at the coming of the second coming, so which is at the very, very start of the millennial reign. Uh, this is this is the actual moment where Yahweh sends his son with a bunch of warrior angels, Matthew 24, 29 through 31, back to the earth through the firmament and to take out the forces of, of wickedness that are aligning to, to try to fight him. So um, this is a big day. And this is actually this idea of the of their the Lord will strike people with this plague. And, and we've tried to go over this in some of our previous episodes where I show you from the second Ezra chapter 13. Also, um, this is a, a quick little reference in second Thessalonians chapter two, verse eight and nine. And it's, this is the fire of the Lord that comes with Yeshua and the angels that come down. It's also in Joel chapter two, verses one through 11. And it is the army of the Lord, which is led by Yeshua. Uh, they're coming back with incredible fire and heat and it, all these forces of the earth that have gathered together. Um, they're in the Valley of, of, Armageddon, they'll be destroyed quickly with fire, as explained right here. But then there's what's called, that's the initial battle of the main forces. But then the rest of the territory of this 1500 mile square is where the New Jerusalem is going to set down has to be cleared out. This is what's called prevailing in warfare. And so they've already won the major battle. Now they have to prevail over the remaining forces. So this is where they're going to go through that entire landmass. Uh, this is referenced in Matthew 13. 13 verses 49 to 51 as the angels are separating the righteous from the wicked and that word in the greek i've tried to explain in the past is a is a reference to like cordoning off right separating boundary lines because they're removing everyone from where the new jerusalem is going to set down it's not going to be a wizard of oz situation where the the house falls on the witch right no one's going to be underneath because the whole place is going to be burned with fire and clear and completely cleansed so that the beautiful pure undefiled city can set down on a clean purified place um so this all happens at the beginning of the millennial reign this is this is what's called the day of the lord with several dozen verses in, in the throughout the scriptures and it's the return of the messiah the second coming where he creates peace on the earth but it happens on this day as a result of a pretty cataclysmic and epic battle so we have a caller calling. Hopefully that's a Rick. Hopefully that's a decent answer for you. We have a caller calling in. This is uh Bobcats droids calling in. What's up, brother? Uh oh, I can't hear you. Can you hear me? I can hear you. You can hear me. We can hear mm. you and see you. There's got to be a reason for that. All right. Well, um, I, I have two things. One, I, I did leave you another question in Luke, uh, ch uh, chapter. Let me see. I've got it right here. Luke chapter four, 16 through 20. Um, it, it's about that timeline that I was talking about, about the Messiah's timeline. Okay. What's your question, brother? I'll put it on screen for us. Um, and, uh, he's quoting from Isaiah here, uh, but he's saying that it's the, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, uh, in other translations like, uh, ISR King James, it says, um, 
something a little different. So uh, it says acceptable year of the Lord. So I'm just curious if you think that that's a year or if you think like, I'm, I'm just curious what you think. Um, Cause I know you've read that before. I'm, I'm sure many, many sure. times. Yeah. Yeah. What can you help me with your specific question here? What um, if you can hear me? Um, I'm not sure which monitor you're listening on, but if you can hear me, help me with this specific question as far as, because this here, he is repeating um, Isaiah 16. Okay. Uh, sorry. Mm-hmm. I can hear you through YouTube and then it's just a little delayed. Um, okay. So, so here's, uh, so I've got, I've got two things. One, Daniel um, nine talks about uh, it being 62 weeks. Most people refer to that being uh, some sort of like millennial thing. Uh, also, if you look at Exodus 12, what, six, what, which wait, I feel like a can, lot of people overlook. Can you wait, slow down? Okay. I'm sorry, man. I'm going to slow you down a little bit. So what about, Dan, do, you, do you need me to go to Daniel nine now? What, what are you looking at? Still Luke four. What, what specifically about the 62 weeks in Daniel nine? Are you relating to, are you, what is the general question? Oh, I think I lost you. Okay, so there's two parts. Uh, one is 62 and seven weeks, um, which is before, I think that's 9, 24, or 23. It's seven weeks and 62. Some people have that as 70 weeks. And then it says 62 weeks and then the Messiah will be cut off. Um, so, you know, I'm just, that's one. And then, and then there's one other thing, Exodus 12, I'm six. I'm so okay. sorry, brother. I apologize. So I just want to make sure I, if I'm going to give you a very clear and direct answer, I want to make sure I understand your question. So you're asking about uh, revelation, excuse me, Daniel chapter nine. So I'm going to go there real quick. Okay. Sure. Cause it sounds like you're trying to tie two questions together. So if I don't understand your first question, I think I'm going to be lost in your second one. Yeah. So, um, so Daniel chapter nine. All right. So let's go there. Can you see my screen? I guess it's whether we can come to it, whether it's a year like his, what, what is a year? What are you, what is your question? I can see it. Oh, you're asking about the length of his ministry. Can you hear me now? Brother? Uh, his ministry being a year. Yes, okay. yes, yes, yes. I was okay. going to, text that before and then there's another question in there but i thought i'd just call you since okay that's fine on. that's fine i Although apologize I we seem to have a delay a <laughs> yeah i apologize we seem to have a delay i don't know if you can hear me as quickly as i'm speaking or not but um i i've never understood daniel chapter 9 to be speaking about specifically the um so you're saying because of the 62 mm-hmm. weeks you're thinking then it's his ministry is a year. You think that this is referring to the first coming of the Messiah. Well, correlating a few different things. So, yeah. So Luke mentioning in 416, when the Messiah speaks that from Isaiah, which is to proclaim, I call it more like his proclamation, his announcement. This is who I am and him doing that for a year. Then, 62 weeks. And then one other thing is in Exodus 12, six, everyone always talks about the, the lamb being unblemished. Um, but it also says that it's a male in its first year. And if you look at from the mikvah to the, the cross or execution sake, that that's a year. Okay. Is, is what it seems. So then it would all correlate together, I guess is, is, okay. So you're, I, was you're to, in... I was just wondering if that's what you thought. So, uh, I, if you by I, reading that, because you said you didn't know, so I thought I'd throw. Something. That's fine. Yeah, that's great. This is great. 
Um, I think, apologize if there's a delay, I'm not trying to speak over you, but I don't think you can hear me responding. Um, so you're, you're inferring from Exodus 12, six from the, from the instructed ordinance of a specific Passover lamb that has to be less than a year old, that therefore it must be relating to the Messiah's ministry length. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes. Okay. Okay. So I, um, possibly. I'm sorry. I don't have a, yeah, a but not answer less than on a year. It you. just says a year old. So, right. Yeah. Okay. So then where, help me understand where you're trying to go with Daniel nine twenty six in relationship to Exodus 12, six, and also Luke four, 16 through 20. I just, I, I apologize. I'm because of the delay and, and, um, I don't think I'm understanding. Well, exactly. 62 is weeks it all of it just, less than a year. 52 weeks or any and year, then uh, over a year. Well, or, or a little over a year, sorry. 52 uh -huh. weeks, 62 weeks, yeah. That would be yep. like... A little over uh, a year. Not less than a year, but yep, over a year. And then the last part would be that he says that he's here to proclaim the acceptable year of the Father. Well, first thing I would say is Luke chapter 4, what it's repeating there from Isaiah chapter 60, um, is he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. And I know that, I know what you're... I think I understand now what you're uh -huh. inferring from that is that you're thinking that Yeshua was proclaiming in Luke chapter four by quoting Isaiah 60, that this year of his ministry was what Isaiah was talking about. Is that what I'm getting from you? Correct. Okay. Okay. We've got Correct. Yes. quite the delay. That's my, that's my inference. <laughs> yes. Okay. I've, I've never understood it to mean that because what he's actually quoting yeah. In the in the context of what he's quoting is the um, um, is the if you read the fullness of that passage, we'll actually go there real quick, so the people following along can also not be confused. Okay, so here we have, and let's make this a little bit bigger. So we have Isaiah sixty. 61 here it says the spirit of the Lord of God is on me. And because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance to comfort all who mourn, to console the mourners in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty for ashes an oil of joy for mourning and a garment of praise for a spirit of despair. So they will be called Oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Now, I'm just going to stop right there. It actually goes on to say a lot more. And, and I would suggest that all of it has to do with those who are resurrected in the first resurrection, because this is a huge event in the gospel of the kingdom that Yeshua talked about all over the place. But specifically, these first three verses that I just read, there is direct references to the gospel of the kingdom having to do with the resurrection in this concept here. And this is... Um, this uh, here's the part where he's quoting right the, the the day of our God's vengeance that was not the the during the ministry of Yeshua on the earth no matter whether you think it's a year or three years right we we did not get this fulfillment of this prophecy no and he also stopped he stopped talking before he got to that so maybe that's in his second coming which would be right. the day of vengeance so yeah right well his first coming makes the second coming possible. Yes. If I could put it like that, right? Everything yeah. he did to fulfill the scriptures, like he talked about, um, he had to come that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Yeah. So this is part of that is that 
he had to get to his priesthood so that he could then step into this place of a ruler and a high priest in, in the two offices married into one, which gotcha. was prophesied of his Melchizedek prophes, uh, priesthood. And all of it has to do with fulfilling the day of the Lord where the first resurrection happens, which is the, the reference right here. Okay. This is the first yeah. resurrection reference to someone that's given the oil of gladness. Yes. This, this is also why in Hebrews chapter one, verse eight, nine, which is parody in Psalm 45, six and seven, that's mentioned as well, that he above his fellow companions, meaning before he first of the first resurrection, the first fruits was given the oil of gladness before anyone else. Yeah. So this is, you. this is um, him definitely quoting a lot of Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah a lot. Sure. And, he references, but he, al he also quits. Like, I mean, we added to, we added men added to, but he, he right. stops right there and, and doesn't read the end. So it's just kind of yeah. interesting. What's recorded for us in Luke stops right there. You're hundred percent right. Yeah. Um, what I have seen when I break down the consistency of the gospels is over 44 times. Yeshua is referencing the gospel of the kingdom in his, in his passages, in his ministry. And mm -hmm. that's not including all the actual verses where he's teaching about the behavior of the kingdom through parables. Gotcha. So I have to remember in John chapter 21, where, where the writer of John says that if all the things he said and did were written down, there would be enough libraries in all the world. Behind yeah. That information. So sure. therefore I agree with you hundred percent. It's I just weird. I see what you're doing. hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. Daniel. And then you've got, well, most people correlate. The one thing I was going to say now that I finally were on the same line, I realized I had the wrong, I didn't have my headphones plugged in. I had my okay. speaker plugged in and I didn't have it turned on. So sorry about that. Um, it's okay. But but the when people reference the seven, seven weeks and 62 weeks, and then they do the 62 weeks, they're actually correlating two different times. And it's because I feel like people add in the the, which sounds very strange, but that's how we as English speaking people like correlate, you know, oh, the, so it's speaking of the 62 weeks. But I think he says seven weeks and say, I'm, I just feel like a lot of people use that as prophetic thing that's that are going to happen in the future. And really it was speaking obviously about the Messiah who is to come. So anyway, just, just a thought on it. That's a little different. Sorry. My daughter came in. Uh, and then, and then the, uh, the other thing being obviously Exodus 12, six and, and Luke saying that, and then John with John, I think it's, uh, it's, uh, what is it like six, four, where it's, they inserted the Passover. So from John's timeline, it's Passover to Passover. I know you mentioned that. You said that John seems to, you know, have it a little bit, but then they added Passover. But really, when we see where he did the the feeding of the 50,000 or the 5,000, not 50,000, uh, it's actually correlated in the other scriptures, uh, the other three gospels to be um, uh, around the feast of either trumpets or tabernacles uh, around in that, in that scripture. But they add it to the feast of, Passover. Uh, but I did have another question for you since uh, it's I like a real one, because this is something that I have not read up on and things like that. And I'm very did, curious well, before we, before we jump. Okay, to go ahead. Else. Yeah. Did yeah. I even, did I even know you any, did any well, help? You said you, you didn't know. Clearly, well, I'm just trying second. to reason together. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, no. Okay. I get it. Yeah. So, so it yeah. seems like you're building a case for something. I'm trying to figure it out. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to do. So yeah. Okay. Uh, the other, the other real question I have for you that I don't have any clue on, except for some things that I've read, it doesn't seem like the spirit can enter you. Uh, it seems like it can only come upon you. And I don't know if you've answered this in any of your videos before, but I'm very curious just off of all the knowledge that you have in the old Testament, everything you read, uh, a lot of, I hear a lot of people saying, I want to be a vessel so the spirit can enter me, but I don't feel like the spirit, like we could even handle the spirit, if that makes sense, like in our humanly form. So I'm just curious if you have any reference to where I can start on that. So 
uh, obviously, you know, most people will probably knee jerk with that question and say, well, is, doesn't it say we have the deposit of the spirit in Hebrews 8? What does that mean? Right. Other people have equated that to being what First Corinthians mentions as the gift of faith. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Paul doesn't really expound, you know, yeah. so we're getting all these one sided letters from Paul, which is part of a conversation. You know, um, in the Old Testament, we do see the spirit fall down on people. Sure. Like even even people that didn't exactly ask for it, like King Saul. Yeah. Right. So you've got this amazing moment, and especially Numbers chapter 11 with Eldad and Medad, where the where the elders uh, with Moses and Aaron had surrounded the tent of the tabernacle testimony. Spirit drops on them and then spills out on these other two dudes. They didn't ask for it. It doesn't go inside them. I mean, we could be talking about semantics, right? Whether you the spirit flows through you or the spirit comes upon you. We do know we do see a couple of examples in the Old Testament where the prophets um, and those who were being discipled to be prophets, the spirit came upon them. I mean, is it semantics? I don't know. Obviously, you know, in Acts chapter two, you see this idea of the spirit dropping, which I've I've done an entire video, Acts two, nothing new. It's the same thing that happened in Numbers chapter eleven. Um, it's except these gifts of the spirit. Sure. We're, we're helping them overcome the language barrier so they could minister to those who had sell, who assembled for Passover. But um, so basically, you know, I think ultimately it's it's a semantic issue. No. Yeah. If if yeah. if we're leaving the, the term terminology and the verbiage of having the deposit of the spirit. Sure. When you come into faith. Right. Yeah. Which is where I think it's, you know. If, if we want to get technical about it, and I'm, and I'm sure there's some Baptists out there that are that are about to lose their mind for me saying this, but um, if we're going to get technical about it, the moment that you open up your heart to the Father, right? Whereas sure. typically you'd say you ask Jesus into your life, right? That's yeah. modern language. But the moment that you open up, it's that's you extending in your innermost thoughts in your heart, you're extending faith. You're extending mm -hmm. this idea that you believe he's real, that you believe his son's real and that they can save you, even though you probably don't know what any of those words mean, but yet you're still doing this in that, in that willingness to be open for them to do something and reciprocate to you. And that reciprocation is what I think is referred to as the deposit of the spirit. Yeah. So then people that are hardcore Baptists will say, well, that's the moment you're saved and you can't lose that. And I'm like, all right, yeah. well, then you definitely got a disciple after that. So we've got some discussion sure. to have. Yeah. So after that, um, that's where this then as you disciple and you get more trained and more trusted by the father, that's where I see more moments of the spirit coming upon you for ministering the gifts of the spirit. Yeah. So I'm trying to work through the verbiage here. Does that help at all? Yeah. No, it does. Well, I think the thing is, is for a lot of people that are professing believers in the Messiah and and want to walk out his commands and, and live the way he does is like, if you don't, like, what does it mean? Or what does it feel like when it comes into you or when you feel it? And I've definitely felt. Oh, sure. I've felt it. Yeah. Yeah. But I've never had it come into me. So my, like, I mean, at that that's, point, people would go, am I truly saved? You know, I'm just talking about yeah, for other people. Brother, too, that's where some people would say it thing. did come into them. Like, yeah, yeah. Some absolutely. people would say about your experience that, oh, the, the spirit entered you at that moment, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. And then you're like, yeah. well, okay, well, what's the difference between. But then you go on and continue, you know, living the life and, and make mistakes and things like sure. that. And you're just like, gosh, you know, like. Am right. I, you know, am I forgiven? Am I going to be resurrected? Those kind of things. So you're always kind of worried. You know what I mean? So like I, I, more of a question for, for others as well, but also if you had seen anything where maybe I could work hard enough, like Enoch and, and, you know, 
come and preach to people and then go away and then come back and things like that. Cause I just don't, you know, it's pretty difficult <laughs> to, to know for sure. And I feel like a lot of people have that salvation question inside them every day. Like I'm not safe today. Oh, I might be okay today. You know what I mean? So gotcha. Yeah. Well, I would just definitely, you know, I think this is why Paul tries to remind us in Ephesians chapter four, I think it's either verse 29 or 30, where he talks about, uh, don't grieve the Holy spirit that's been given to you as a seal for the day of redemption. Yeah. So that's kind of like, um, same similar with Hebrews chapter eight, but I, I think this, we're not led by our emotions, right? We're led by yeah. the, you know, the faith and discipleship, right? And that discipleship is learning the knowledge of God as first Peter one talks about so that we grow mature um, as Paul mentions in Philippians chapter two. But this, yeah. this idea is that we have to mature. We have to grow in this knowledge of God so that then we can realize even on days where we don't quote unquote, feel saved, whatever that yeah, means, yeah, yeah. Yeah. we're still, you know, that he, we have faith that yeah. regardless of loss, regardless of triumph, regardless of failures, um, no matter how many times you fail. I mean, look at Romans chapter seven, verse 20 through 29, Paul's expressing this idea that he, he struggled with sin as well. Um, that you still don't give up the faith. In fact, I had a, a friend from high school that we had these conversations when we first became believers mm. and he's actually passed away. Um, it's really sad. Yeah. He, he was taken too soon. And uh, we, we would have these conversations about this exact process. And yeah. he thought, why am I not doing this perfectly? Sure. Like why, yeah. why am I still messing up? And like, I just, he, yeah. he would get real down on himself and I would, yeah. don't get me wrong. I would get down on myself too. Cause we, he and I were accountability brothers and we would talk mm -hmm. about our sins and stuff. And then, and he would just be like getting overwhelmed feeling like, well, how come I can't stop doing this? Or how come I, I feel, st I, he didn't even want to feel tempted to sin. Mm -hmm. I'm like, brother, yeah. welcome, welcome to life. Everything yeah. I've, you know, I was only like a year <laughs> old in the Bible at that point, but I remember saying to him, like, from what I read, man, it says that, you know, he who without sin is a liar. It seems like we're going to struggle with this thing for a while. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> so, it doesn't go away. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, and if you think that just because you had a bad day and you sinned or you messed up and suddenly sure. you're not saved, that would point back to Abraham. I mean, the homeboy is considered a, one of the, Abraham is like one of the great patriarchs of the faith. Yet you mm -hmm. look and you see that the guy's lying to Abimelech about his sister to the point where he's putting Abimelech's life in danger. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And oh, Abimelech yeah. has to chastise Abraham, who was a well-respected and honorable man who had been following Yahweh for, if, if Jubilees is correct, for over 70 years at that point. Yeah. And he's still yeah. in fear and not faith, but he's in fear to the point where now he's lying, which is against Leviticus 1911. He's lying to his brother. Yeah. Um, which Abimelech and Abraham and uh, Genesis 20 was actually obedient and open and willing to follow the Torah. This is why he took the reprimand from the angel that appeared to him and then went to Abraham to, to address the situation and, and give Sarah back to Abraham. Like it was just, you know, he was clearly obedient to the creator and his, and his ways and respected that. And so Abraham, we look to him and we say, man, we, you know, we're grafted into the faith and Abraham is a father of this faith and mm -hmm. he's a wonderful example. But at the same time, that dude was walking with Yahweh for over 70 years and he's still sinning. He's still yeah. having problems. And that's fear. funny because I always think about Jacob and it talking about how he went off when Esau was trying to find him in Joshua and he was in his sixties and still learning the ways of the father. That's right. And that's what, that's, that's the one that I hold on to, but I'm going to remember yours as well. Cause that's really good. Cause yeah. It's a, it's an ongoing struggle, but I, I want to say, I appreciate everything that you do. Um, no, thanks, man. I've learned a lot from you as well. And uh, just keep doing it because like, for me, I live 35 minutes from, 
away from anybody an hour and 20 minutes from the only brother that is around me that I've gotten to come to my house. So I really appreciate everything you do. And uh, you're okay. really helping out people like me for sure. So thanks, uh, cool, man. man. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for calling in. All right, buddy. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. See you next time. Later. All right, guys. That was a good call. Thanks, brother. Um, trying to catch back up on the questions here in the chat. I don't know what happened to West Blaze. I think uh, maybe his internet went out or something. So, yeah, he's welcome to call back in if he's still here. And we can pick back up where we left off. Um, I'm looking through the chat for previous questions. Clean B is asking, would it be fair to say the millennial reign is given a duration for the sake of those outside the kingdom rather than those who are resurrected? Well, sure. Uh, yeah. I think, I mean, if you're trying to look at it in that light, then yes, that would make a lot more sense. Um, you have the mortals of mankind who did not partake in the first resurrection, so they have not received their glorified bodies yet. They've survived uh, the incredible destruction of the earth and the warfare and the 42 months of Apollyon. They've survived all the horrific stuff, and they have now have seen Yeshua return with angels through the firmament and the descension of the new Jerusalem. And as Isaiah 4 and, and my other places talk about, the, you know, they encamp around the new Jerusalem um, to learn the ways of the creator, uh, to, to encounter with Yeshua and the resurrected saints to uh, encounter that priesthood and learn and learn Torah so they can live in peace. All right. And all the antagonists are taken out of the picture, the Kings of the earth, um, whatever Nephilim will be here at that time. Um, the unclean spirits, Satan himself is locked away. So there's no antagonists. They have a thousand years to repopulate the earth and, and do it in peace. Now there's still going to be sin. Why? Because they're mortal. So they're, you know, Romans seven will apply to them. They're still going to be tempted and struck with sin. This is a part of the flesh, right? Uh, Romans five twelve. it came through Adam. So they're not resurrected. They're not glorified yet. They're learning the father's ways. They have not been given those ways on their heart to the point of not having to learn it, which is what's promised in Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34, repeated in Hebrews 8, um, verses 11 through 13. So all the mortals outside the New Jerusalem, is it, it, it definitely will be their benefit to have an, a thousand years to live in peace and to teach their children, grandchildren to the 15th, 20th generation. Yes, that come, let us go to Zion. Let us go to the mountain of the Lord and learn his ways as, as Isaiah 2, 2 through 5 expounds. Um, that the people of the earth will say at that time, they're going to talk to each other, say, come, let us go and learn his ways. I mean, that's beautiful. If, if people would try to learn the creator's ways now, we wouldn't have war. We wouldn't have theft. We wouldn't have, you know, um, all the horrific stuff that you see going on in our life. So I think it's definitely for their sake. They get a, a wonderful time to learn and be around Yeshua and the resurrected saints and the, and the incredible city. Uh, wildly unpopular is asking what does first Corinthians chapter 11 mean when it says because of the angels as a part of why women would cover her head sorry if I asked twice not sure if I hit the inner time enter the first um let's go to let's read it together uh, we'll go there real quick okay put this on screen for us to look at. And I'll take your question down so people can see it real quick. So I'll start in verse four, um, even though I'm kind of cutting. 
All right, let's start in verse one real quick. We're going to read down to verse 10. It says, you are to imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Guys, this means Paul followed the Torah. But that's probably for another video. Verse two, now I commend you for remembering me in everything and for maintaining the traditions just as I passed them on to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. And guys, this dispels the Trinity, but that's for another video. Verse four, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every man who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for it is just as if her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And it's if it is, excuse me, and if it is shameful for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from the woman, but a woman came from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman was created for man. For this reason, a woman ought to have a sign of authority, uh, have a sign of authority on her head because of the angels. So I think I've heard a lot of people try to um, try to say that this is in reference to. Okay, so the previous context is breaking down an authority structure, right? That's why you've got the idea of the father to Yeshua to mankind to woman as far as breaking down your authority structure in verses two and three. So it then goes on to try to expound for the women's sake that, you know, it's referencing if she doesn't cover her while prance as if she has a shaved head and therefore it's shameful, not really calling it a sin, but that it's viewed as shameful. So this is where some people would like to argue this ver this part of verse two, where this is where Paul is referring to their modern traditions of the time. If a woman had leprosy in Leviticus chapter 14 and 15 and had to shave all of her hair of her body like is instructed, and then she wants to come bring her after uh, on the eighth day, she wants to bring forward her, her sacrifice for atonement. Is that a sin? Because now she has a shaved head. No, of course not. Because the father told her to shave it. Right. So this idea is, you know, it's we'd have to look at it, you know, kind of in its context. He's not technically saying it's a shame for a woman to shave her head or it's not, he's saying it's not, excuse me, Paul is not saying it's a sin for a woman to shave her head, but just that it's, it's a shameful in their tradition in their society, um, which is, was the case for almost all of history until modernity with the feminist movement. And now it seems to be kind of a badge of honor for feminists in rebellion against the authority of man, which is very fitting for this particular passage here. Um, because they're rebelling against the structure that the creator uh, set up that Paul is referencing in this passage. So therefore women, you know, like to shave their head and be all rebellious feminists. So verse 10, angels are a part of an authority that is in this hierarchy that wasn't mentioned before. Okay. So technically, I guess what I'm trying to say here is I, I don't think that this is referencing the, um, I don't think that this is referencing the um, the the angels looking upon women uh, in lust, as it, as it's referenced in another verse. That what we see happening in First Enoch, Genesis six, Jubilees five. This whole concept where they saw women lusted after them and took them after. And First Enoch says the women tried to entice the angels that came down uh, during the days of Jared that they lusted after the angels as well. So I don't quite think it's referencing that because of the previous context of verses one through nine. I think it's it's more having to do with the angels weren't mentioned in the previous hierarchy of what he was saying before between the father, the son, mankind, and woman. 
but technically the angels would be in between uh, Yeshua and mankind because they're sent by Yeshua to do stuff, right? Since remember Matthew eleven twenty eight and uh, Matthew twenty eight um, verses uh, twenty one, all thirty in heaven and earth was given to Yeshua. That means he has control over all the angels. So therefore, like in Revelation chapter one verse one, God gives the Father to Yeshua, who then sends that message through an angel to John on the island of Patmos. So this is this, you know, I don't know if Paul is just trying to insert the angels in here into a place where he forgot to mention it previously in verses two through four. But I, and a lot of people have thought maybe this has to do with Genesis six and Julius five and first Enoch. I don't know if that's it at all because he's mentioning authority structure. Um, so I, something to consider. Um, also, um, why is he, let's look at a different translation, because I'll be honest with you, some of these translations kind of confuse me when it comes to Paul's uh, wording about certain things. And so my thing would be, why is he saying because of the angels at the very end of this, because of the previous context, um, being in authority, which is basically, I you know, I honestly don't have the best answer, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. I don't have the best answer. I just I just don't think it has to do with what I've heard tried to be explained about this passage, uh, being that it has directly to do with the angels taking wives and having Nephilim by them uh, before the flood. Um, I do think that those angels were dealt with. The other angels have not made that mistake since then, and and they're not, they're not going to. Um, I think this has more to do with an authority hierarchical structure, and he's... He's doing this. Uh, yeah, he's just trying to include the angels in this hierarchy because he kind of left them out earlier in his explanation. So I'm sorry. I don't think that's the best answer for you, but that's that's the best that I've understood that passage to mean. All right, I'm going to look for another quick question. Uh, Corey is asking, will I do another book like I did Matthew? I haven't finished Matthew yet. I'm thinking at chapter 23 at this point because I wanted to finish the Investigating Babylon series first, which I'm going to, Lord willing, I'll be done by midsummer with that. And then I'm going to finish Matthew. And then, yes, I'm going to do another book of the New Testament um, because it's part of that series for Kingdom Cast is New Testament Context for Pastors where we review, um, break down, we show you basically all the Old Testament that is being referenced and spoken of through these New Testament epistles. All right, running through the chat, running through the chat, looking for another quick question. All right, Jeremiah 15, 16 is asking, Shalom, how do you know you have the Holy Spirit? Well, I would say, are you prompted to do the Creator's behavior? That's the biggest and first and foremost, right? So you're not antagonizing. Okay, so most people want to want this question answered in the vein of like church language. Have you come to faith and belief? Have you had a moment of repentance where you, you decided your life was destructive and you want to, you want to believe in Jesus, Yeshua, Yusha. I know it. You want to believe in the, you want to believe in the son of God as your Messiah, put your faith in him for your salvation, whether you know what that means at that point or not, that you believe that he, John three sixteen. And then you're prompted towards good works. So this is what I think is evidence of the the deposit of the Holy Spirit, right? Well, we talked about it with our previous caller, some of the semantics of that language. 
that way you have the spirit of God that you don't want to grieve. You, you don't, you refrain from grieving the Holy spirit by doing proper good works, which is the works of discipleship, which is behaving like Yeshua, right? This is who we disciple after he did the Torah. That's what we do. That's why we emulate his behavior. It's the behavior of the creator, his father. That's why we practice that behavior and that therefore we please the spirit of God. We, we please the father and the, and our high priest and savior Yeshua, because we're doing the right behaviors in our discipleship. If we don't, then we're grieving the Holy spirit that's in us. So it's, hopefully that's a decent answer for it, but I say it's, it's what's prompting you to do the will of God, the perfect pleasing uh, will of God, which is Paul tries to reference in Romans seven. Okay, guys, looking real quick. Um, yeah, actually, uh, where'd this go? Oops, I just lost it. Yeah, Clean B, I was, uh, when I was reading that in 1 Corinthians 11, making those jokes, I'm actually, once I finish um, more books from the New Testament for the contextual study guide, I'm actually going to be doing just videos with that study guide to show you all the multitude of places where Paul is preaching a father and son, not a trinity, and he's preaching the Torah everywhere, every, every, everywhere. I mean, it's, it is the foundational understanding of discipleship, of what he was teaching Timothy and Titus, what he was teaching all of his converts at all the different places he went to evangelize. It is what he calls sound doctrine in 1 Timothy 1 through 7. Uh, 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 7. Um, he, you know, it's why he calls it perfect, holy, good, acceptable, pleasing in Romans and a whole bunch of different places. He calls it Romans 14. He says it's the behavior of the kingdom of God. Paul talks about the, the Torah, the commandments everywhere and it's what we should be doing it's what he did and what he taught and so yeah th what i'm going to do is i'm actually because uh, romans is one of the first books i've done from the new testament with the contextual study guide so i'm just going to go through that and show all the different places where he's just expounding on the covenant the torah the the son of the father which is anti-trinitarian stuff um the resurrection like it's just it's abundant it's everywhere it's just hopefully it'll make paul easier for people to read and understand C. Marie is asking, are aliens just demons and unclean spirits, or are they a man-made myth? Uh, I think it's a mixture of things. I don't think we live on a ball in space. I think biblical cosmology is correct. I think we live in an enclosed uh, firmament and on, on the circle of Earth. And I think that all it is is deception. The idea of aliens coming from outer space to the Earth is deception. It's not true. I think as I went over my Kingdom Cast series, Investigating Babylon, it was episode four. I went over flying machines. And I go over the ancient technology where they had lots of different flying machines uh, recorded thousands of years ago. 
and it was a part of the Nephilim. It was a part of those who were in the know as far as the rulers of the earth that may not have been Nephilim, but have been their familiars. They're connected to their kind of like we have today, you know, they're taking orders from the unclean spirits. They're the higher levels of government and they may have access to higher technology. And that's, that's all it was um, is simply the same deception of old is going to be rehashed in the future because they've dumbed down the general populace enough to fall for it again. And they're removing people from the word of God systematically enough for enough people to fall for that type of deception again. And so, yeah, it's essentially the idea of aliens, whether it's specifically an unclean spirit that somehow gathers a body to then show up in, a, in some sort of spacecraft looking thing. I don't know. I was, I would have, I think revelation nine and the 200 million things that come out of the pit with the polyon have a lot to do with that. I'm going to be reviewing that further in my kingdom cast investigating Babylon series. Um, as I go into the, uh, the future segment, the last seven episodes of that, I'm going to be going over Revelation 9 with greater depth. But that has a lot to do with it, is that um, those same ancient fly machines we see in the past are being rehashed for a new dis for a rehashed deception in the future where it's going to be this alien invasion. And we're going to have to you know learn from their wisdom, you know, kind of nonsense. So is it just a military person controlling that craft? Is it an actual unclean spirit somehow with some sort of synthetic biology life form that he's now been able to inhabit, which is what I think transhumanism is trying to do as far as create a synthetic life form that could be inhabited by an unclean spirit and not die. Cause think about mankind. When, when a person is possessed by an unclean spirit, their body starts to, to break down, develop sicknesses, cancers, different types of things. No, I'm not saying every person that has cancer is an unclean spirit. I'm just saying, if you look at someone that's that's had any form of, of lengthy possession, they start looking sickly, emaciated, start having all kinds of physical health problems because they're not their body wasn't designed to be inhabited by an unclean spirit. So there's a lot of problem there. Um, so what I do think transhumanism is trying to do is I think that they're trying to create a synthetic life form that can exist enough to be inhabited by an unclean spirit, therefore bringing these ancient Nephilim characters from before the flood back into the stage of they're no longer just the shadows and trying to influence people through seances and mediums and spiritists and witches and through the occult. But now they can get back into the stage in a very, very real way um, like they were before the flood. No, they just won't be giants like they were before the flood. Now they just, they'd be more like an Android of some sort. Right? So that that's what I think they're going for. And I think Re revelation nine has a lot to do with that. Um, but at the same time, I, it, what we see is actual flying craft that they say are aliens from another planet could just be remote control powered by some military force agency or an actual human soldier in that. That's a part of the perpetration of the deception. So there, I, I'm, I'm sorry, it's a lengthy answer, but answer, but I'm, I'm trying to address it from two different angles to say that the deception as a whole is perpetrated, organized and propagated by unclean spirits. It's carried out in the details by corrupt mankind. So hopefully that's a very thorough and decent answer for you, as short as I can make it. Um, I saw another quick question. Uh, Alan Moyo, the prince in Ezekiel 46, that's going to be anyone that's a ruler over that land at the time. And uh, some people believe that it's Yeshua. 
being referenced in that moment, but it could also just be the governor or the ruler of that, that regent of people that come forward with the sacrifices for Passover, Shavuot, and Feast of, of Sukkot. All right, so it looks like we have a quick caller. Uh, Tom is calling in. Tom, can you hear us? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Hey, brother, I can hear you. All right. I got a question about divorce because I had a, uh, I got a friend who I've been talking about a lot of this uh, stuff with. He's starting to come around, but we're, we were both confused about divorce and he's, he's a, he's going the pastor route and he was talking about, oh, um, he doesn't want to marry people who have uh, been divorced. And so we got into this discussion about, about it. And I'm, I'm having a hard time understanding when, uh, let's see if I can find the exact verse that I was referring to, uh, Matthew 19, eight. Okay. Yeah, you probably already know where I'm going with this. It's one uh, of two places. But yeah, Matthew 19, 8. Um, specifically the part about the hardness of heart Moses allowed you to divorce. Uh, I'm not interpreting this way, but I'm running into people who interpret it this way where they say, well, that's another indication that Moses is, or the Mosaic law is different than uh, the law that Christ is teaching or the Torah or whatever, you know, and um, but then when you look at what he, what Jesus says in um, the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> right, he says, except on the ground of sexual immorality, hmm. um, an argument that I heard recently was that, well, it's not because it's not permitting divorce because of the sexual immorality. It's the person who committed it did that they made them or they they transgressed on their own you're not making them sexual sexually immoral by divorcing them does that make sense okay um and you know i'm just kind of trying to wrap my head around this and i don't understand it well enough to really make us make an argument that i'm confident in okay well i um yeah i'm try not trying to be difficult i just again like i was telling the previous caller um, I, if I want to give a specific answer, I want to make sure yeah. I represent that I understand your question. So you mentioned uh, two different concepts there, and I just want to make sure I understand your question. Could you help me with, um, can we just walk back through it maybe and, and try to find a very clear question? Okay, from, let me give it another shot. Okay. Um, so is is Jesus saying no divorce whatsoever or is he still, or is he saying, except um, if one of the uh, husband or wife commits sexual immorality? Maybe that's, that's probably about as direct as I can make it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So in the in verse eight there, we are talking about Moses permitted you to, uh, to divorce your wives because your hardness of heart, but it was not this way from the beginning. To my understanding, that's a reference of him saying that, Moses explains certificate of divorce to you because of your hardness of heart. Mm -hmm. But the way it was from the beginning was that man would be with his woman and that would be forever. Right. Once, once the two were joined, then that was forever. It was not supposed to be separated. Um, it was supposed to become one flesh. Right. And so therefore it was because of their hardness of heart that they would separate that one flesh. And that was what Moses explained to them with the fullness of the law given to mankind um, during their events at Sinai. So hopefully that's a good preface right. to what we're about to say. So okay. over from what I understand of this passage in Matthew 19, as well as the cross passage in Luke, 
to what the Pharisees were doing was they were actually putting away a woman and not giving her a certificate of divorce. Therefore, when she went to wanted to marry someone else, she suddenly becomes an adulterer because she's still joined to a different man and was never officially released. Uh, Does that make sense? Yes. Except in the situation of sexual morality, then she's automatically released. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Okay. Um, where, but where do you like, uh, where can I point to that in the scripture that I can see that? You want to go to, um, let me see if I can remember, um, passage, the cross reference. Because the way, the way that I was kind of thinking about it was I was walking through this whole Sermon on the Mount, matching it up with, um, Torah instruction. Yeah. And I was picking up on a on a heavy mercy theme here, and that's what I was kind of. That's where that's where my mind was going. Was maybe he's saying you don't have to divorce, right? There's reconcil that's reconciliation is an option there that you should pursue. Um, I don't know if that that sounds kind of in line with what you're saying here. Yeah. Um. I'm trying to find the actual passage. Uh, so if it's in Luke 16 or Matthew 5. Real quick. Yeah, let's go to Matthew 5 real quick. And I see we have another caller. Um, I'll bring you in in just one second, brother. Just one second. Let's finish up this real quick. Here in Matthew 5, 31, we have Yeshua talking about the same topic. And he says, it's also been said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual morality, brings adultery upon her. And he who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So a lot of people would like to say, well, see, if you com- if you marry a divorced woman, then you're then they commit adultery. There's adultery happening. But that's the idea of marrying her, except for the case of sexual immorality, uh, excuse me, divorcing her, except for the case of, mar- of sexual immorality. So basically the idea is he's trying to say, look, you're not just supposed to divorce for any reason, mm-hmm. right? Otherwise, unless it's sexual morality, and then there's a, uh, I would guess, if you will, a, a moral, spiritual reason that the father would say, okay, I understand. But other than that, you're supposed to work it out and get together. But if there was not sexual morality involved and you just sent the woman away and, and divorced her, then you're going to make an adulterer out of her or you because you're not you're you're not divorcing her for the right reasons, basically. So right. I see what you're saying and I see where people can take this and run with this and say, anyone that's divorced can never get remarried. I don't think that's the, that is at all what it's saying. Um, I think that there is clearly reasons people need to get divorced, especially when there's abuse involved and that, and that abuse is not always just adultery. Um, But this is the idea that the father wants to, you know, the the heart of the Torah that I understand is that the father wants to protect women and children. Mm -hmm. That's what, you know, James 127 says, a pure and undefiled religion, right? Is looking after the orphans and the widows and keep yourself unblemished, un- unblemished from the world. So this idea that um, you would just have this ability to, to divorce a woman and then even if there was no Im- uh, sexual morality there and then make an adulterer out of her because she wants to go on and live her life. I don't think that that at all is what it's saying. I think it was, again, this uh, first century idea and context of, of what's in the Talmud. Um, this is where Yeshua is addressing a lot of the stuff that's in the Talmud mm-hmm. very often as he's trying to explain them. This is your traditions, but this is what the law of, of Yahweh says, which sometimes he refers to as Moses. Um, Cause remember Moses didn't make up anything. He just, right. He just delivered what 
the Father gave to him through the angels. So this is where I, I think I'm trying to be clear, but I see your caveats and I'm trying to address the two different things that you brought up. And I apologize. I don't think listening to myself, I don't think it sounds clear. I think I'm having an off night, to be honest with you. Um, I'm, I'm rusty. Well, I'm, I'm rusty following, I'm following everything <laughs> so, you're saying. Um, okay, hopefully, because basically what I'm trying to say is um, there was a tradition that they were sending their wives away without officially divorcing them, and it was not because of sexual morality. So therefore, in the father's eyes, it's you're, you're causing unnecessary adultery. Now, here's the thing I want to say. If you committed the sin if 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 say that there was a uh, sexual morality or that you know the the wife had no say in the, the husband was acting unrighteously and sent her away and she had no say in the situation and she wants to go and remarry and she didn't know about this information right and she can't get the husband to act righteously and properly to get a divorce and she is needing to be cared for. That was a huge point of getting married was that you're being cared for by the person that you're marrying. He becomes the head over you, right? Not, not just emotionally and spiritually, but also financially. So this was a big deal back then for them to send a woman away and not give her actual divorce so she can be cared for by another man. And so therefore she's left destitute and you left her in a bad financial, spiritual, emotional situation. It was unrighteousness to do that. If she even got didn't know the rules or didn't didn't abide by them and then went and got married, is the father going to hold that against her for the rest of her life? Or is she going to treat this like a sin that can be atoned for or the man who acts unrighteously and maybe is divorced by the woman without proper cause or reason and without proper finality, according to the father? If he goes off and remarries, is it going to be a forever thing where you have to be single for the rest of your life or you can't ever remarry? And if you did not abide in the Toro as you try to remarry somebody because you weren't aware of how to actually properly exegete it all. And you made that mistake. Does the father not forgive you like all the other sins that you've done? Mm -hmm. I would say, no, the father, of course, the father forgives you. The father is not going to withhold forgiveness for you because of this. He forgives adulterers all the day long. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So I guess the, the bigger, the bigger reason I'm addressing that idea on the tail end of your question is because of your question usually comes that your, your friend is bringing up. It usually comes from a place of fear of thinking, Oh my goodness, I'm in sin now. Does that make yes, sense? Exactly. Yeah. We, we, that's where it was going. He was, yes, that's confused. where it always goes. Are we in a perpetual state of sin now because I've remarried after divorce and right. Yeah. And that's where I would say, no, just like all of your sins, confess, repent, you know what I'm saying? And then some people say, Oh, well, that means I have to get rid of my wife. You can't go back to your other wife, especially if she's already, according to the Torah, Jeremy 24, even if she's already remarried, even if you split, uh, uh, if you split in um, contradiction to the Torah's instructions and now she's remarried and you've remarried, well, you definitely can't go back now. Right. Because you're not split. You know what I'm saying? So like, yes, no, so just it's like it's a one time, you know, right. thing. you made that mistake once. Right. Right. Yeah, this is where we just, this is why we confess our sins to our high priest. He's faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We do this in faith and belief. We're all learning his word, his Torah. He knows what we know and what we don't know as we are growing in the knowledge of God. So this is where hopefully that will bring some sense of peace to your, that's usually where this question comes up. People read these verses without the context of the back history of the story of the Torah. And they think, oh my gosh, I'm in my second marriage. And I must be in sin. Well, his, per so his perspective though, is as a pastor, should he do like marry people 
who have been divorced. That was his um, issue. He's like, well, I don't feel like I should because even though they might not understand what we were just talking about, he does. And so, like, would he be, you know, I don't know. <laughs> and the, I wanted to I apologize to the other caller, but I want to complicate this a little more. When you look at First Corinthians seven ten, okay, um, uh, through that's uh, seven ten and eleven. It's the whole two chapters. Or First Corinthians chapter seven verses ten eleven. Okay. Oh yeah, sorry if I said that wrong. So um, yeah, Paul's saying basically her two options are remain unmarried or be reconciled. Right. But if there's a situation of sexual morality, she doesn't have to remain unmarried. Right. And, and if she but can't I'm talking about him, the, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm saying he also goes on to say a husband must not divorce his wife. Yeah. So, <laughs> so if he is not acting, like I said earlier, if he's not acting righteously, what is the woman to do? The father protects the women and children. He yeah. cares for them. That is all cost. He even has the the whole throw a sandal at you if you don't take your brother's, your deceased brother's wife and care for her. Yeah. Like you, you know, he the man would be shamed in his society according to Torah if he didn't care for his deceased brother's wife. Even if you know, what I'm saying so. Like it was a it was a huge deal to protect and care for the women because they that they the father instituted the authority structure and therefore he put all these caveats of of behavior for the women to be cared for within that structure. So again, this is where you'd have to look at you know, all the ingredients to these type of statements and see, okay, mm -hmm. well, what if, if a woman has become a victim of unrighteous behavior from the husband, then I don't, then I don't think that this is applying to her personally. I don't think that Paul is, is, is somehow contradicting Matthew five or Matthew 19 or Deuteronomy 24 mm -hmm. by saying that she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. I think there's other caveats here. There's more to it. Paul taught the Torah constantly. I think this is a, um, a quick reference to um, something that's he's referring to, but it, we don't get the full expounding, if you will, on this topic from Paul. We get a quick reference, a quick teaching on it, basically. And again, like I said before, this is part of a conversation to the Corinthians. We don't know the circumstances of why he's even bringing this up, because remember, he's discipling the Corinthians. So this this means something in their congregation needed this needed to be addressed. But why? And so we don't know the circumstances of that. I think he tries to tell people this is the biggest caveat. A husband must not divorce his wife. So anyway, I hope that's not too confusing, brother. It's a, it can be a complicated situ, uh, scenario to discuss, but mostly because the people that ask the questions are doing it out of utter fear because they read Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and do not know the Torah. Does that make any sense? Yep. They run into it all the time. Yeah. All right, Tom, I'm going to bring on Incarnate Unlimited. He has a question as well. Tom, you're welcome to hang out for a quick minute. Guys, before we before we address um, any further questions, thank, welcome Incarnate Unlimited. I appreciate you calling in. I had a super chat that that came and went as I was trying to address these previous questions, so I don't want to I don't want them to think I'm not appreciative. Thank you so much, Chase, for your super chat. He asked if he was wrong to roast a lamb on Passover since he's not a Levite. And I would say, no, this is we're all encouraged to celebrate and take part in the Passover. And we're doing it to the best of our ability and memorial observance since we are scattered, which has been prophesied and we're not regathered in the land yet. And we're all celebrating the feast to the best of our abilities in memorial observance. We're all not following the letter of the law, so to speak, when it comes to observing Passover, Unleavened Bread, Sukkot, Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Sukkot, or uh, 
Shavuot, all the, all the things, right? We can't go to the city. We can't bring our sacrifice before the Levites at the temple. We can't do any of the stuff instructed. We're observing it in memorial. So specifically, um, Passover, um, if you want to observe that memorial by, you know, roasting a lamb or a goat, as the instructions of Exodus 12 say, that's that's okay. That's what my wife and I do. We cook lamb on Passover, and we just have a, a meal that we dedicate to the Father and say thank you. Um, and we do it with our shoes on, you know, and, and uh, we try to practice as much as we can. But we realize we're in the dispersion. We can't do it all to the detailed letter of the law. And so we we just ask the Father to accept what we can do. So hopefully that's a good answer for you. Incarnate Unlimited said, hey, brother, welcome. Thanks for your patience. Oh, that's you're, you're great. Thank you for having me. Um, I have a question um, about, see, my, my landlord, is her dad has like been a Baptist pastor for like 65 years. And when I explained to her last last year that I was trying to, uh, that I was trying to do uh Yom Kippur, she looked at me with this, oh, you poor deluded fool look on her face, you know, because she's she thinks that Torah is nailed to the cross and, that, you know, that uh, Torah is actually the law of sin and death that uh, Paul was talking about. Right. Um, I'd like to see I'd like to I'd like to nail down a defensible position, you know, when I'm faced with people who have been steeped in Christianity for their entire life on why Torah and it. How do, how do I clear this up with people? You know, the why we would practice Torah as believers in Yeshua? Yes. I mean, I already know that that's like hands down. There's no question for me that that's like, you know, it's not salvational, but it is because I have salvation. I feel inclined to want to do his behavior. You know what I mean? Sure. Sure. That was the best response that I could come up with at the time. But uh, do you have any recommended? Verses or something like that for that you can refer me to. I do. Next time there's, um, you know, next time my landlord uh, is curious about, you know, my my latest quote Jewish holiday. You know, <laughs> I do, I do, brother. Can you see the screen right now? Um, loosely, it's okay. Yeah, Matthew. Okay. We got Matthew 19, 16, okay. uh, and seventeen. Well, you can kind of read on, but it. This is a man coming up to Yeshua, our Messiah, and asking him, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Mm -hmm. What is, what is the, you know, you, you mentioned your, I think your father-in-law was a Baptist pastor. Uh, my landlord's dad. Sorry, your landlord's dad was a Baptist pastor uh, for many years, several decades. And one of the most famous passages from Baptists is John 3.16, right? Yeah. And what is the promise of John 3.16? Oh, that's a... Uh... Do you believe because God so loved us, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe whoever in, believes in him shall be saved, shall not perish, but have yeah. everlasting life. So if we want to fulfill John three sixteen and believe in him who was sent so that we don't perish, but have everlasting life, the guy who gives us the everlasting life tells us in Matthew 19, 16 through 17, as a guy comes up and questions, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus responds, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. He's referring to his father. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And this I have done since birth, right? And this guy says, which ones? The man asked. And Jesus answered, he gives him a brief summary. Obviously, he's not going to just repeat the entire Torah in this short conversation to him. He says, all these I've kept, said the young man. What do I still lack? And then Jesus tells him another Torah law. Okay, 
another one. This is the part is directly out of Deuteronomy 15. It says, go, if you want to be, if you want to be perfect, this word in the Greek means complete. It doesn't mean that you're sinless. It just means that you're, you complete till the end of your life. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. This, it doesn't say sell all your possessions. It says go sell your possessions because as he, as it explains in the next verse, this man had great wealth. Well, in Deuteronomy 15, anyone that had more money than he needed, he had abundance, was supposed to share with his brethren, hmm. specifically those who were poor. So this is why the temple, the priesthood, was the conduit, usually, of that process. The wealthy would then put bring their tithes, their first fruits, and any additional votive offerings or extras that they had that they were generous with, that they wanted to then give. They could give it through the priesthood. The priesthood would then work with the poor, the needy, the orphans, the widows, those who needed those resources. And they would not just hand the money, but they had the food, the cattle, the you know, because remember that all the excess from the first fruits that were brought into the temple, the priests had control over. So once the priests had their portion, there was a ton left over that they could then distribute out to the poor, the widow, the needy, orphan, you know, that kind of stuff. But that depended upon people obeying Torah. So Yeshua is repeating Torah for this guy and telling him. He's basically reading his his naughty list, mm-hmm. right? So he already mentioned <laughs> off a couple other things, and the guy was like, "Well, I do those, yeah. right?" And then Jesus is like, "All right, well, here's what you don't do." Yeah, because Jesus, you know, he's Jesus, right? He he, the Spirit would flow through him with the gift of the Spirit, the Word of Knowledge, to know what's what's holding up this guy in his heart. And that's why the guy had great sorrow because he had great wealth. He clearly Yeshua struck the nail on the head with this guy's person uh this guy's um uh, character flaw right his lack of poor behavior which was specifically the generosity that that him as a wealthy man was supposed to exhibit according to deuteronomy so this is um yeah this is him just telling this guy left and right keep the torah keep the commandments yeah the interesting part of that one uh is is that uh the the way that that one ends it seems like um the guy walked away and he didn't get salvation because he didn't sell sell his possessions because he had too many years. That's the way it's kind of spun when you hear it from well, someone. Yeah. I mean, people can, that would, that's what we call eisegesis, right? That's where they take yeah. something that's not stated and they imply their own opinion of what they think happens. Yeah. Um, we don't know what happens. If that man went away, he was sad that day because he had great wealth, but then he thought about mm-hmm. it later and changed his heart. We don't know. You know, it doesn't it really tell you Say that, that, um, it, he, it doesn't say that if you want salvation, go sell everything. Just if well, you want to be perfect, go sell Yeah, everything. if you want to be complete. This is why I try to help people with the word perfect to understand what that word is. It's used both in the Old and New Testament, the Hebrew and in the Greek. And I'm going to, I'll pull it up on screen for us to look at real quick. It's, it's used in Hebrews 10 and a whole bunch of other places. And it doesn't mean that you're without sin. It doesn't mean that you're like Jesus who was without sin. It just means that you're being complete. If you want, because he's saying, how do I get eternal life, right? what Yeshua tells us is he who endures to the end, right? It will be saved. And that's where we get the eternal life part is at the end. And so um, let me go here real quick. It's the word teleos. I'll put this on screen for you. All right. So this is what he, this is what he told him. If you having reached its end to be complete. And also it's used of the word perfect as it's translated to English, having reached its end, complete. So if you want to reach the end, what did he, what was the previous context in verse 16 and 17? How do you get eternal life? Well, that's at the end. Yeah. Right. You're saved at the end 
you get eternal life, which you'll never sin again at that point with your new heart, new body. So this is how complete in all its parts, full grown of full age, especially of the completeness of Christian character. Hmm. See, so this specific Greek word tells us a lot. It kind of loses some meaning in translation. People, people use the word perfect in different ways in modern English. So yeah, show, show your friends, you know, if you want that, the breakdown of that word even, but ultimately it's, it's very simple. Yeshua directly tells somebody, if you want eternal life, if you want John three sixteen fulfilled in your life, do the commandments. Yes. The, you that if you love me, you will do what my father commands. That's right. Yeah. John 14, 21. And then also John 15, eight through 11. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Faith. The word faith gets taken out of context a lot and, and misused. I believe it's not just belief, but it's like actually being faithful. Mm -hmm. you know? That's right. It's, it's a belief that is exhibited by action, which is, which is the definition of faithful. Yeah. So then we also have, um, I think it's uh, Revelation 2, and also obviously Revelation 22, but um, some of it, you know, with, uh, this is why I do the Kingdom Cast uh, episode. I don't know if you've seen our secondary channel, Kingdom Cast, where we, we've yeah. done quite a few episodes on the Torah from the New Testament perspective. But yeah. here in Revelation 2, this, this one would kind of require, this is supposedly, you know, the Father through Yeshua, through an angel to John, given this message Revelation. It says, repent, that just like Jesus proclaimed repent, Matthew 3 and other places, um, just like Jesus claimed repentance, also he's claiming repentance here to the seven churches in Revelation. The word yeah. repent is meaning you're coming back to doing the behavior of the Father. You're doing the doing behavior of Yeshua. The other direction. Right. You've got, to, you've got to stop doing your wicked, destructive behavior and do the behavior of Yeshua, which is the commandments. Um, and this is where he talks about, you know, if you overcome, meaning you've repented, he'll grant you to, the right to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. That's your resurrection, and then you're taken to live in the New Jerusalem. That's the end of the story. That's for as a resurrected saint. That's that's you being saved, quote unquote. That's that's the actual second birth, I believe, right? Right. That's right. That's the yeah. literal second birth. I know a lot of people like to argue about that. And they like to say, well, when you when you put your faith in Jesus, you're born again. Okay, yes, you're regenerated. You start that you get the seal of the redemption of the Holy Spirit. You start that process of repentance, but yeah. you're still in this physical body. You're still in your first birth body. You don't yeah. get your second birth body until the, the great resurrection. Yeah. 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 It's amazing though, because I mean, if you could have seen me like three years ago, I mean, you wouldn't have recognized me. I'm I'm uh I don't know. I I've He's really done a lot for me, and, and I'll save myself from going on and on here. But uh, you know, I'm just very blessed that uh, we have people like you, you know, and your and channels like this, you know. Uh, and you, you yourself, your channel is like a, it's like a league of its own, dude. Like it's it's like. I'm uh, stammering for words right now. Oh man, I appreciate it. I don't but, think my haters would agree with you, but I appreciate your kind words. Well, <laughs> yeah, we, we got a lot of people that struggle with our channel because we do talk about, um, we well, talk about an, the Torah. It's an atypical position, you know, it's not usual, but it all adds up. You know, I've, I've been, uh, without your channel, I, I feel like I wouldn't have, you know, even close to the understanding that I do. You know, I've been following Skiba and, and Zen for a couple of years and, 
you know, there's not very many of us out there that actually, uh, that, you know, actually have the, the over the hurdle of churchianity and they've gotten past all of these, uh, the, it's like, you know, most people don't even know that, that, uh, typical like Baptist, Methodist, whatever, you know, ist Christian theology is, uh, it, it has its root from Catholicism, which is flat out, uh, like, it's like Satan putting on a mask that has Jesus's face on it, you know, and, uh, and anybody who's an adult and who's still Catholic, um, you know, they should probably read their Bible a little bit. I, I, I'm sorry. I didn't, I don't mean to bash on any Catholic people. It was just, uh, yeah, yeah I, I think, um, uh, what this is a great representation of, Catholicism, and I'm gonna put this over on screen for us real quick. This right here, like you said, right? It's it's they claim to be professing Jesus and the, hold up the Bible, but it's just a mask because underneath it's really the occult. This is a great visual representation of that. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, if you can't, if if you're actually in that building and really still thinking that that guy represents Jesus in any way, shape, or form, there's, you know, that's what I'm saying. If you're an adult and you're still Catholic, like, look a little bit, like, look a little further. <laughs> yeah, it's a, yeah, definitely. We, hopefully, they stumble on this channel and we encourage them to dig in a little deeper. Yeah. So, yeah, we got Tom calling back in. I guess he's got another question. And also, I have a super chat real quick I want to get to. You're welcome to stick around Unlimited uh, Incarnate Unlimited if you want to, brother. Um, and R.A. Tacky is saying, thank you for the $5 super chat, um, saying, how can we respond to someone that claims the thief on the cross is the example that all we have to do is believe? No Torah, no fruit, just professing. Um, here's the thing I would say with the thief on the cross. We, we do not know his life previous and we don't know. Uh, clearly, Yeshua judged his heart to be acceptant of Yeshua's kingship, high priesthood, prophesied coming, and authority. To me, this is exemplified in the thief on the cross's confession of, you know, we deserve what we did. He's telling the other thief who's mocking Jesus. And so the, the quote-unquote good thief on the cross next to Jesus says, says, hey, man, you know, we deserve to be up here. This guy's done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and says, you know, when you come to your kingdom, please remember me. That All that right there is, is like confession of wrongdoing, which means you have a repentant heart, and proclaiming that you believe Jesus is the Son of God sent for you who become your high priest, your Savior, Redeemer, King of kings, Lord of lords, and he will reign on earth through millennial reign. He will be the one that raises you to eternal life. That whole thing is summed up in that quick little confession of repentance and faith by the dude hanging next to Jesus in agony on the cross. So for Yeshua to turn to him and declare that he will get eternal life. Hallelujah. I want to worship a wonderful, yeah. wonderful King. Who's that merciful. Remember Yeshua, you know, the, the father and the son sit on the mercy seats. They don't sit on the vindictive finger pointing seats. <laughs> They sit on the mercy seat because they're merciful. So they're going to accept a lot of people who have, you know, a, a very willing hearts, but may have gone astray in their life because of whatever reason. We don't know the circumstances of why that thief was on the cross. We don't even know if he was justified, justifiably a thief, according to the Romans, because they clearly liked killing innocent men. Right. So we don't know exactly the details of his life. But with that said, there's a lot of believers 
that may not have the most wonderful fruit in their life. They may not have the best discipleship or the opportunity to learn about the ways of the Father and, and have someone help them walk in those ways and get better at it over time. They just, in their heart, they believe God is real. They believe His Son is here. And then maybe they died shortly after that for who knows whatever reason. I love the example of Yeshua treating that person mercifully because that's literally the judge talking to that person on the cross yeah. in that moment, telling them ahead of time what their judgment's going to be. To me, that's that's the kind of savior that I want judging me. So, yeah. you know, that's an amazing thing to me. And and it shows you that it's the, the you know, the idea of how much, you know, doesn't guarantee your salvation. Because there's believe, a lot of I'm sorry, what's I'm, that? I believe uh, another great example of that is uh, somebody asked Yeshua about what an example of the faith that's necessary for salvation. And one of the people he cited was Naaman. Mm -hmm. Right. <clears throat> the guy with the, uh, with. In second Kings, uh, I think chapter five. Yeah. Uh, 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 not Elisha. Yeah. Yeah. With, yeah. Yeah. Dip yourself in the Jordan seven times. And then can I please have some dirt? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Because he had a heart of faith. He even asks, yeah. you know, telling Elisha with fearfulness, he's like, please, you know, don't hold it against me that I have to go with my master to the house of his God, you know? And, mm -hmm. um, and so I think that, you know, he's, he was in a situation he couldn't get out of according to their customs and rituals and the authority over him, but he wanted to do what was right. And he felt guilty immediately knowing he was going to be forced to be in a place that he may feel compromised. So that, to me, that's exemplifying a heart of Torah. Yeah. And that's another prime example of, of how merciful he is. Like you can still carry this king up into the temple of Ramon and uh, <laughs> uh, it's okay. You know, just don't, don't make any sacrifices yourself to him. Sure. You know? Yeah. That's, that would be the big caveat. Yeah. So that's but, for sure. Uh, Tom, did you have a quick question? Do you call back in? Can you hear us? Yeah. I got another question. If you'll, uh, if you got the time. Yeah. Something I've been trying to, I've been meaning to look into. Um, so maybe you can give me a head start because I got some uh, crops coming up. I'm getting ready to harvest them this on Sunday, and I started thinking about the whole first fruits thing. It's something I haven't really spent the time to figure out. Maybe you've already got a video on this that I can look at, or not maybe. technically. Okay. You're, are you asking what do you do with your first fruits? Yes. You know, my wife and I talked about this, and. I, we think the best, at least what the conclusion we came to was if you have a local charity, a local food bank, a local somebody that's given food out to people in need, that would have been the job of the priest. Like I explained earlier of the, the priest of the temple anyway, redistributed the excess that was brought in because the Levites were only so few people. Right. So then once they went through their portion for them, they had all these extra first fruits brought by all 12 tribes of Israel, way more than they could ever eat. So, that's why it became a storehouse for those in need. So therefore, if there is some other outlet in your town that, you know, as a food bank gives food out to the needy, um, that would accept your donation of crops. I would try that first. Okay. Um, Cause it's, that's essentially the same thing. It's just, you know, slightly different um, conduit, but it's the same action. All right. Now, how does that work with the, like, I'm looking at my house ministries calendar. Uh, that was a great, uh, episode by the way and you know you've got the first first fruits of different types of crops on here at different times of the year that yeah that's a great question brother we we didn't talk about that during the during the broadcast because i was trying to focus um i knew it was a long topic 
And that's why I wanted to do a part two with them because we were trying to focus specifically on the idea of the calendar that they had developed based off of Enoch and Jubilees. But I didn't get a chance to go into all the specifics of everything they've included in their calendar. But we have said in our Facebook group that we do not, some of the things that they included in their calendar, which was from a temple scroll um, that we do not see legitimacy for in the Torah. So we wanted to be as fair as possible to My House Ministries because we actually follow that same idea of calendar based off Enoch and Jubilees, 364 days in the year. Um, but there was some things, those four different uh, feast days they include are brought in from the temple scroll. And we do. I know a lot of people like this is kind of a hot button topic for a lot of people um, because it's what wine, oil, um, wood and meat, I think it was. So that's I do not see a precedent. I think a lot of people, what they've done is they take passages from Nehemiah and Deuteronomy where it mentions things together in the same passage and they think it must be speaking about three or four separate feasts because it mentions three or four types of common produce or harvests that would have happened in an agricultural society does that make sense mm -hmm. so the temple scroll which is where those specific extra uh, observances come from we find a lot of issues with it and yeah. we're actually studying that scroll to prepare presentations to show you know, it's not going to be in the next month or two because I have a lot of other things in my play right now. But but coming in the future, I'll be able to do a presentation specifically on the Temple Scroll because there's um, we would not include that in our calendar observances from uh, for a variety of reasons that we will be showing people. So if you want to keep first fruits, from my understanding, from what we would recommend um, from from your scenario you just shared with me, um, I would say once those have been harvested, uh, which may not be in line with those temple scroll observances anyway, I would then take that first fruits uh, that you want to pull from that and then go donate to food banks of any, of any kind. So. Cool. So the amount, the amount is kind of your discretion. Yeah. I, if you want to take a 10th, that's always a good safe amount. Oh yeah. Okay. You know what I mean? Um, I just started thinking about, you know, this is not my situation, but you got farmers who've got on, you know, hundreds of acres of corn that wouldn't right. be, yeah, so it'd be whatever they figured out is the right amount. Okay. Right, right. And of course, Dora also instructs us not to glean the entirety of the field and leave the mm -hmm. edges. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that, that, you know, that that could be another one or two percent. I'm not sure how big your field is, but um, ultimately, I, I just know that the Father will bless you for, for that sacrifice. So, cool. all right. Thanks. Yeah, man. I hope that was a decent answer for you. Yeah, it's great. I don't mean it can be confusing, but uh, you you kind of brought up the, the 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 temple scroll concept, and, and we just haven't really addressed that yet. So I was trying to make it quick, but pretty, it's a great question, great question, brother. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome, man. All right, Kyle Johnson is asking. Um, Kyle is asking, and Rev, thank you for the super chat. Super chat, by the way, Kyle. Appreciate that. You're asking in Revelation 20, verse 8. It sounds like the Gog Magog war is after the millennial reign. Ezekiel 38 sounds like it is on the day of the Lord. Which is it? Is the Gog Magog war before or after the millennial reign? It is, well, you're, you're mentioning two different things that's referencing two, that's reference using the same reference. Um, Okay, so let me say it like this. You're mentioning the words Gog and Magog are geographical references to clans that had went out from Genesis 10 into different regions. So it's mentioning where people are coming from. 
from different regions. Okay. Which is from my understanding of its use in scripture is an idiomatic phrase, meaning they're coming from great distances from all over the place. So this is why Ezekiel 38 and 39, I 100% agree with you. It is the day of the Lord and it matches Revelation 19, 15 through 21. Um, yeah, 15 through 21. So therefore, all of Ezekiel 38 and 39 is expounding upon the armies and the battle that happens from Revelation 16 to Revelation 19. Well, Revelation is not entirely in chronological order. So the Revelation 16 battle of Armageddon that's referenced which is also referenced in, in its completion in Revelation 19, Yeshua, the angels take out the wicked, the mighty men, the kings of the earth, and you know some are the beast, the false prophet, thrown like a fire, and the kings of the earth are slain with the sword. That whole concept is parroted, or is is the parroting, is the mirror of Ezekiel 39, and the biggest way to determine that is that you know there's a great call to the birds of the air to feast upon the dead that have been slain on that day. A thousand years later is the Revelation 27 through 10 moment where Satan's let out. It deceives the nations, um, a whole bunch of people from the nations. They then try to attack the New Jerusalem, and fire comes down from the firmament and destroys those people trying to attack the New Jerusalem. How do we know the difference that that Revelation 27 through 10 event is not Revelation 19, 15 through 21, or Ezekiel 38 and 39? Because of the ending of the battles. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, in Revelation 19, Yeshua and the, and the warrior angels in those battles. In Revelation 27 through 10, the new Jerusalem defends herself, which is prophesied in Isaiah 54, verse 13. Firm Set fire comes down from the firmament and destroys those who are attacking the city. Yeshua and the angels aren't even involved, in Re as far as I can tell, in Revelation 27 through 10. The city defends herself. This is prophesied in Isaiah 54, 13. Biggest points of context to hopefully quickly divide those two, just because it's using the same references in Ezekiel 38, talking about Gog, and then also it references the geographical locations in Revelation 20 as Satan goes and deceives people from Gog to Magog, meaning from large portions of the people that have um, repopulated throughout the millennial reign, spreading out from the center of the New Jerusalem outward. And, um, and that's where he goes and deceives a whole bunch of people from all over the place to try to attack the beloved city. So there's a big difference. There's a thousand years in between. And those are geographical references. Um, so hopefully that's a decent thorough answer for your brother. Appreciate the super chat. Guys, uh, I think that'll be the last one I take for the night. It's almost been two hours and I'm exhausted. I'm going to celebrate Shabbat. So um, I really appreciate everybody being here and joining me. And yeah, I think that's the last one I can do tonight. So thank you so much for being here, guys. I really appreciate it. And uh, we hope that... Um, you join us tomorrow, 12 Central Standard Time, for our tour portion. See you later.